Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Yeah, it's been a while. I've been really busy. I've had a full summer with lots of jobs and challenges, and such is the way of life. Has yours been any different, more relaxed, easygoing, or just the usual? Well, we're back, and we're back in a number of ways, because we're, as always, seeking to rejuvenate and find good reasons to keep the podcast ticking along in a way that's mutually beneficial, meaning for you and for us. And yes, I'm speaking in the plural. An upcoming episode will feature my old buddy, my old podcast mate, Stuart Baldwin. We'll be looking into AI and some of the implications of it on the practicing life and the practitioner. It's really interesting because so many people are chiming in on this topic at present. There's much to unpack and I think we've come up with a very interesting framework for doing so, which will be of interest to you. It'll be coming out uh, hopefully towards the end of September. What you're getting today is an interview with another fellow Brit. He's called Richard Dixie which doesn't sound very English at all, does it, as a name? But anyway, there it is. He has the usual PhD. Sorry, Rich, that's no negative comment against you. It's just, well, it seems like all the Buddhist teachers have got one these days. He is a scientist and lifelong student of Asian philosophy. He runs the Light of Buddha Dharma Foundation in India with his wife Wangmo, who's the eldest daughter of Tibetan Lama Taratang Tulku, who we'll talk about briefly in the conversation. He is a senior faculty member at Dharma College in Berkeley. He studied for his honours degree in biochemistry at Oxford University and has a master's degree in the history and philosophy of science with his doctorate in biophysics, obtained from London University. All this to say that Richard's got quite an interesting mix in terms of his background, and I try to, well, interrogate all of it. Interrogate in the sense of question and bring those two strands into the conversation. The science and the philosophy of science and the Dharma issues too. Now, Richard makes some interesting claims in the conversation that I don't really fully respond to, partly because it hadn't been the plan for the uh, conversation and I hadn't expected it to come up. And partly because, well, you know, I'm not a professional philosopher, so when I have something to say about the topic, it's usually because I've given some thought to it and asked other people who know far more than I do to chime in so I can borrow their expertise. Now, the topic is related to epistemology, whether reality exists beyond the senses in terms of what we can know. You'll hear about it in the conversation. And I promise, I do promise, that I will get somebody on who can have a more meaningful response to it. My intuition says there's something else to be added. Anyway, for now, we've put together a new list of guests. There are some other projects in the works too. But, well, if you want to do something in the meantime, after listening to this obviously wonderful and perfect and beautiful and lovely episode, you might want to go over to the Speculative Non-Buddhism site. I spent a bit of time writing this summer. had to squeeze it in. It was not easy to do. But I put together an explorative two-part text called An Antidote to Stupidity. Yes, that's quite the title, isn't it? But, well, you'll see why if you go and read it. 
The second part is actually very, very practical and it's my attempt to put together a kind of anti-anti-intellectual curriculum for the practitioners out there. It features questions and reflections on key topics from the world of philosophy and elsewhere that I think most modern day practitioners really should read up on and learn a thing or two about if they really wish to bring further intelligence into the practicing life beyond the mere iteration of Buddhist teachings. Anyway, go and have a look, see what you think, and as a call to add something of your own too. Anyway, I hope you're all well. I hope you're all living a good life, engaging in the practicing life in ways which are meaningful for you. The podcast this year will continue to strive to bridge the gap between intelligence and practice. I am speaking today to Richard Dixie, in particular about his upcoming book, Three Minutes a Day, a 14-week course to learn meditation and transform your life. That's quite a big promise, and we'll get into why he might be making that one. But first question, Richard, do you meditate for more than three minutes a day yourself? I do, actually, although, you know, I think the three-minute-a-day approach is very helpful, particularly for people who are starting out meditating or for people whose meditation practice has got a bit stale. Um, but I do, I sit for about half, well, actually, I do two or three practices a day, so it depends. The three-minute approach is really designed to be inserted into your everyday life wherever you are, not so much as a formal thing, more as a kind of exertion to encourage people to use meditation to look at what they're actually doing in their lives rather than merely sitting in front of a Buddha somewhere in a quiet room. <laughs> so it's more integrated into experience. Okay. Can you tell us a bit about your background? Let's start off with your role as a scientist. And also, uh, perhaps you can say something about what your current relationship with that world is. Yeah, sure. I, you know, I met, I met Buddhism when I was a student uh, studying biochemistry um, back in the, in the late, early, very early 70s. And at that time, I was very impressed with the structure of the Dharma, although, of course, Buddhism at that point was really only just getting introduced, particularly Tibetan-style Buddhism. And I, I landed up going to India when I was in my early, very early 20s, um, you know, on a sort of spiritual quest. It was an amazing experience to go to India in those days. Um, and when I came back, I was quite clear that there was a, an element of life which was completely unaddressed by scientific rationalism, which was really the way I'd been educated, that somehow science was going to explain everything. And in fact, I got very interested in the Western esoteric tradition at that point, um, because I realized that the Western esoteric tradition also reflects an element of experience which is just totally unaddressed by modernity. It effectively esoteric by the rise of modernity. And I landed up running a laboratory um, in, in London for a long time as a research scientist with a, with a kind of esoteric bent. And then I rediscovered the Buddhist tradition again. I kind of re-engaged with it. And this time with a lot more experience. And I began to see that the Buddhist tradition, particularly the meditation traditions, have this extraordinary feature of having unbroken lineage. An unbroken lineage is extraordinarily important in establishing a proper understanding of this part of life that has been rendered esoteric or hidden by modernity, because modernity is obsessed by the visible, obsessed by the external, when in fact most of our life is not involved with the visible. It's actually involved with the internal, and that can't be pointed to easily. So having unbroken lineage is very important because it's only through unbroken lineage that you can be sure you understand what people are talking about. Otherwise, you have no idea. So unbroken lineage is very valuable. And I re-engaged with the, the uh, Buddhist tradition. I then landed up running a company um, which was researching traditional medicines based upon um, basically taking traditional medicines into pharmaceutical development. I did that for a long time. 
I was kind of known as the Buddhist businessman at that point, quite well known in the UK. Um, and I retired in 2007 because in 2002, I married the eldest daughter of a very famous Tibetan Lama called Tartang Tulku and landed up coming and living in America. And it was during that time that we started a college called Dharma College dedicated to reimagining these ancient traditions and bringing them into relationship with modern culture. And that's the mission really of Dharma College. And as part of that, I began running meditation classes. And I began to see that traditional meditation techniques, which are essentially predicated on the life of a monk, almost exclusively, really make meditation quite a difficult achievement and a lofty aim for people who are working or in everyday life. And I began to see that you could essentialize key elements of the meditation approach in something much easier to deal with. And that eventually led to this three-minute-a-day approach, which is the subject of my book. You also studied the history and philosophy of science, which are fascinating topics, and, and very much so today. I think you could argue that they're actually undervalued as any current discussion of AI, but also consciousness and, and theories of mind demonstrate. Um, are you, have you, well, are you, have you kept up with those two fields at all? And are you following any of the sort of ongoing revival, we might say, of the philosophy of mind and, and thinking about cognition and consciousness and potential AI developing general intelligence? Yes, I, I, I have. And, you know, I think it's, I think it should be obligatory for students of science to study the history and philosophy of science because it absolutely introduces an element of humility into the heroic narrative that some scientists naively propose, which no philosopher of science would propose, namely that science discovers quote-unquote truth or quote-unquote reality. And these are both statements which are completely invalid. Science discovers what works right now. Now, that is not truth with a capital T, and there is the difficulty. Science is an extremely effective way of, of manipulating common sense, particularly with regard to external phenomena. But the idea that it uncovers truth or reality is a nonsense. Scientific theories mean nothing. Scientific data is everything. So as, as the data improves, the theories change. And the theories can change wildly. So, for example... We still use Ptolemaic astronomy to navigate ships, even though Ptolemaic astronomy, dead reckoning, involves the sun going around the Earth. And then along comes Newton with a completely different model, which is about one thousandth of a percent more accurate than Ptolemaic astronomy when it comes to navigating ships. But it has a completely different model of the, quote, real universe. Then along comes relativity with another completely different model of the, quote, real universe. And again, a very, very small improvement in predictive accuracy. And I'm sure there will be further theories coming along from quantum mechanics, again, with a completely different model of the, quote, real universe, which will, again, achieve very, very small incremental uh, improvements in accuracy. So what you see there is science getting more and more accurate but the, what the scientific theories mean, on the other hand, can wildly vary. And this is a very, very important thing to understand, because the idea that science discovers something true or real would imply that it means something. But of course, it doesn't. All it does is make more and more accurate predictions, which leaves us with a crisis of meaning. And indeed, if ever there was a word for modernity, it is the crisis of meaning. And you're only ever going to address meaning if you address your own experience. And this brings a second element about the philosophy of science, which is very valuable, namely that modern scientific techniques radically changed the old truth claims. So if you look at, say, Aristotle and the Greek concept of scientia, which was about truth, one of the things that the Greeks said was never experiment. Experimental science is not a new development. The Greeks knew about it very well. But they said this. They said the moment you experiment, you lose the truth. Interfering 
with what you are studying. So you no longer see it for what it is, which is why the Greeks never experimented. And with the rise of experimental philosophy, which is essentially modern science, we lost the truth claim. And when you look at what actually occurred, Galileo in particular was scathing about personal experience being used as a model of reality. And his scathing criticisms have reverberated through the ages that follow. So barely a day goes past when you don't pick up the newspaper and it says things like personal experience is unreliable. People don't really, they can't really remember what actually happened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As if personal experience doesn't matter. But actually, personal experience is all we have got. Everything else is inferential. So statements about the universe, black holes, or indeed anything outside us is inferential. The only experience we actually have is our own personal experience. So how are we going to address it? Well, the answer is the unbroken lineages of meditation practice are precisely that. They are techniques which address personal experience. And this is why they're so valuable and particularly valuable in modernity. Now, you also mentioned artificial intelligence, which should be properly called machine learning. Really, it's not intelligent at all. It is a machine-based, a logarithmic technique to create relationships between one thing and another. We ascribe to those devices the word intelligence. But the idea that they are intelligent is a really, really questionable one. What they do is basically correlate what intelligent people do and hence look intelligent to us. That's something quite different. And again, I think they're going to play a very important role in clarifying this very, very important term, intelligence. What do we even mean by intelligence? And this is all deeply interesting and something that I indeed do follow. What kind of, what kind of framework are we looking at, though, if you make a claim along the lines of personal experience is everything? Oh, okay. Well, can, can you experience anything other than personal, personally? Well, I think it, it begs the question, um, what is personal? Where's the boundary between individual experiencing something and a group of people experiencing it? No, it doesn't. There's no such thing as a group of people experiencing something. There are individuals experiencing something in a group. Uh, perhaps. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. There is only personal. I mean, this is something that one needs to basically hammer home. But there is only personal experience. We cannot experience anything outside our five senses and the gate of the mind, the famous six gates. There is no other experience. It doesn't matter if you have a scientific device or any technology, it doesn't matter what you go to. At the end of the day, it is going to come to you through either your five senses or your thoughts and imaginations and feelings. There is no other vehicle. All experience is personal, P the end, period. And this is such an important thing to realize. We're so brainwashed by the idea that somehow there's a real world outside us that we forget that when we make that statement, we're merely inferring from the evidence of our senses and our logic and our thinking, etc., a real world outside us. But we don't have any direct experience of it. All our experience is necessarily personal. Do I hear the uh, yoga chara model of thought in operation? Isn't that what they claim, the kind of mind-only thinking? It's not, it's not necessarily making an ontological claim that everything is mind. It's making an epistemological claim that all we know is mind. So actually, it's the Vijnavada claim. Remember, the, the Vijnavada school, which was then called the Yogacara school, hardened into Chittamatra, mind only. But I'm not making an ontological claim that all that exists is mind. All I'm saying is all we can know comes through our mind. That is certainly the case, and that is absolutely unassailably true. We can have no knowledge of, of anything external to our own minds. There's no way of us doing so. Um, and this is the point, of course, that Kant made as well in Western philosophy, that the noumenon is unknowable. All we have is the phenomenon. We, we, we cannot ever know outside our own six gates. And this is an essential truth that, again, should be taught in primary school 
and stop people being so naive about their own experience. Their own experience really matters. And it's our blindness to our own experience that leads to so much difficulty in political discourse and personal discourse and by people becoming disavowed of the concept of truth altogether because they're not fully locating where truth is to be found. Truth has to be personal. There isn't any impersonal truth you can ever point to. It is always going to be inferential. Anything you make about the, quote, external world is always an inference. We don't have any direct experience of it. Okay. All righty. Well. <laughs> Argue with me, please, but I, I assure you, you'll, you'll fail. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's fine. I mean, that's not, not, not the entire purpose of the conversation. Um, let's talk a little bit about Buddhism next. So obviously, Buddhism, if you're going to talk about experience and personal experience and knowing uh, your own personal experience through your senses and through an exploration of mind, Buddhism is obviously in the West something that's taken that role on very, very importantly. And it's become a primary way of thinking about Buddhism, I think, for uh, intelligent Westerners. Now, you mentioned Taratang Tolku. I'm wondering what your current relationship is with him and his organization. And what does your practice life look like these days in relation to that? Have you kind of gone off or are you doing something differently? Or would you say that you are a, a teacher and a practitioner within his lineage? Okay, well, let's just take Buddhism for a kickoff. So, Buddha said, within this one fathom long body of mind, I declare the beginning of the world, the continuation of the world, and the end of the world. He was making exactly the same statement. And indeed, the Four Noble Truths are essentially predicated on the fact that our life and our suffering arises through our minds. So Buddhism has always taken this position which is why it is so extraordinarily important as a spiritual practice. It doesn't pretend and make the philosophical mistake of pretending that there's something external to our mind that we can address, which is the mistake that every religion makes, that somehow there is some external entity that we're going to have direct experience of. Buddhism doesn't make that mistake, and that's why it's so extraordinarily important. Now, my own particular interest in the Dharma has always been in the early traditions of Buddhism, both the Theravadan schools and the schools that were heavily influenced by Indian Buddhism in Tibet, namely the Nyingma schools, the, the early schools of Tibetan Buddhism. And Tartan Rinpoche is a Nyingma Lama. And indeed, it was under his advice that my wife and I started a charity called the Light of Buddha Dharma Char uh, Foundation, which aimed to bring the Theravadan lineages back to India. And as a result, I had the great good fortune to meet many, many senior Theravadan monks and have again learnt a lot from them about the sort of bare bones of the Dharma without some of the more complicated ritual aspects that you sometimes find in the, in the Tibetan tradition. And those two influences, the Theravada and the Nyingma, have very much informed my practice. And as for my relationship with Tartan Ramshi, well, I'm, he's right above me at the moment, actually. I'm living in his house. <laughs> I'm staying in his house in Sonoma in the retreat center. Um, and it's, it's extraordinary when you interact with Tibetan-trained lamas. There are only a handful of them left now. I, I, think, I think it's under 10 now of lamas who were fully trained in Tibet, Tartan Ramshi being one of them. And they carry a weight of experience that is really quite remarkable because, you know, Tibet, old Tibet, the pre-invasion Tibet, was a culture in which the study of mind was the most important thing. Just like in modernity, I'd suppose you'd say scientific materialism or perhaps money is the most important thing. But certainly in Tibet, this was the main cultural activity of an entire nation. And so the importance that it's given and the importance it was given to these lamas trained in that tradition is something really, really unusual and difficult to experience anywhere else. And it's remarkable to study with practitioners who have that. I've had the great good fortune to study with a few now who have had that, that kind of depth of involvement. Namkai Norbu was one of my first teachers. Akon Rimshe was another one. 
uh, Lachlan Tenzin Namdak, all of these lamas were fully trained in Tibet and as a result carry tremendous weight of conviction and energy with regard to the vital role that the Dharma plays in human experience. And I hope very much my own activity reflects that and reflects that importance. And certainly that's what informs the things I've tried to write, is to really show how these ancient lineages are directly relevant to current concern and have great, great value in terms of what they might offer modernity. And in fact, if anything, I think the time of the Dharma is coming. My feeling is that Dharma teachings are going to play an increasingly important role in emerging modernity as we mechanize more and more and more of our experience. So the insights of the Buddha are going to become more and more relevant and quite the reverse from many of the more traditional religious paths, which I think are dwindling universally. I think Buddhism is growing and growing, and that's because it does directly address this issue. When you talk about growing and growing, what, what are you talking about precisely, though? As far as I'm aware, um, there's a decline in the number of people attending Buddhist centers and so forth. So are you thinking more about just people engaging with meditation and other practices? Yes, I am. I, you know, funnily enough, we just, we just completed a survey of Buddhist organizations in America. It's really, really interesting. There are 2,400 Buddhist organizations in America. We're going to extend this into Europe um, to see how it goes there. And you're quite right. Traditional Buddhist styles with traditional pujas, etc., are falling amongst the Asian adherents who would normally follow those. But the number of people who call themselves spiritual but not religious is growing, in fact, dramatically. Now, the interesting thing about people who ascribe to themselves that label of spiritual but not religious are often those who associate themselves with having a Buddha on the, on the bookshelf or a Buddha in the bathroom. There are Buddhas everywhere. And that's because the Buddha, the actual statue of the Buddha, I think what it really shows, what, what it really um, encapsulates is the image of someone who is spiritual but not religious, someone who makes their own path based upon insight into their own experience. And that's what I mean by the growth of the Dharma. That aspect of the Dharma is something that is undoubtedly growing in modernity. Of course, it won't have the label Buddhism, and that's fine. Indeed, the Buddha himself gave clear instructions not to label his teachings Buddhism or to create Buddhist priesthoods or Buddhist hierarchies. He was really, really keen, and you can see this running through the early teachings, that the important thing about the Dharma is the insight it gives into your own experience. That is the important thing about it. And I feel it's that element of the Dharma that's undoubtedly growing and will play, as I say, a more and more important role in modernity. Well, yeah, it could be the case. It'll be interesting to see how how society progresses and whether the spiritual but not religious group do actually, well, let's say collectively develop some kind of more uh, serious interest in what it means to come to know your own mind and to transform your life, uh, something we'll get onto in, in a moment. But just one more one more comment about Taratang Tolku, because I think one thing I would agree with you on is that there is a need in a sense to adapt and think originally about the application of some of the insights that come out of Buddhism. And Tartang Tolku has been an interesting person in that regard. I mean, some of his work has been quite quite radical. Uh, one book of his that I'm most familiar with is uh, Time, Space and Knowledge, which I actually think is uh, highly underrated and an incredibly experimental book that does attempt, in a sense, to to look into some of the Buddhist understanding and experience of change that can occur through a transformative practice, but it does so without, in a sense, repainting it with the Buddhist brush. I just have a question for you. I'm, I'm, maybe you don't have an, an answer, because it is a hell of a book for a Tibetan, as you were describing before, to have written. I wonder why it hasn't become a classic uh, alongside books such as Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism or, or Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. So have you thought about that at all? Well, yeah, it's really interesting. Actually, TSK, we teach TSK at Dharma College. TSK was taught 
in over 100 universities when it, in, the, in, the, in the years after it came out. So if you go back to the 1970s, because maybe it's an old book now, it was, it was published in 1996. If you actually look, say, at 1980, it was being taught in 100 universities. So the answer is it was hugely influential. The answer is, of course, it's 30, nearly 40 years ago. And because it's addressing what I suppose you might call metaphysics, if you were to categorize it within modern uh, philosophical parlance, because it's addressing these fundamental categories by which we organize experience, it's a tough book. And like all tough books, it comes and goes a bit, but it's having a bit of a renaissance now. We're very much encouraging people to readdress it. Although Rimshe kind of updated the key elements of it in his a much more recent book called Revelations of Mind, which again also addresses the issue of how we construct experience. And it's this is really the fundamental thing. Now, Tartan Rimshe is really interesting. Almost all the books he has written do not use Buddhist language, do not address con uh, conventional Buddhist concerns, but very much use Buddhist insight to address the kind of concerns a modern person, a contemporarily educated person might have. And in that sense, I feel completely that what, we're, what we do at Dharma College and indeed this whole idea of trying to approach meditation in an technical way is within the spirit of what he's trying to achieve as well, which is to bring Dharma into modernity so that the Dharmic insights directly address issues that people may think about or certainly ought to think about in their attempts to make sense of their experience. Yeah, good. So look, uh, to your, your book, it's coming out at the end of August. And it's got a subheading, which I think is important. It has a call to transform your life. Let's start off with that. What, what does that mean, to transform your life as you're using it? Yeah, yeah. So obviously, meditation transforms your life. The problem is that meditation has become synonymous with Vipassana, and Vipassana has become synonymous with sitting for hours and hours. And as a result, there are a very large number of people who become attracted by the, the, the idea of meditation, but ultimately fail to engage with it because it seems so difficult to achieve. Now, why does it transform your life? Because the moment you begin to address experience as experience, rather than using experience to say things about the world, the moment you address experience as experience, life changes. That's to say you begin to recognize a universal truth, namely that all we have is our experience. Our experience is quite literally the currency within which we live. The problem is we unconsciously infer from our experience an external world and then think we're living there. But we're not. We're always living within our own experience. So whenever anybody actually engages in meditation and gets experience of meditation directly, I as experience, because from then on, they can never look externally the same way again. It's like a before and after situation. That's why it transforms your life. Now, of course, for a meditator who's already had that experience, they've had that transformative moment. Then the question is, can you develop a systematic practice of self-exploration? If you can, that is going to be, if not the most important thing in your life, certainly one of the most important things in your life. Because you're going, you realize immediately that without that, in a very deep sense, you don't know what you're doing. So people who chase after external success, external possessions, any kind of activity in the, quote, external world, without understanding how they are making that world from their own experience, are in a very deep sense asleep to what is really happening. Even if they appear to be being successful and appear to be getting on with things, nonetheless, in a very deep sense, they are asleep. The Buddhist term is they are ignorant, but it's strictly speaking ignorant of that. They're ignorant of that key element, which they should understand if they're going to live a complete life. That's it. Okay. 
All right. So you also claimed that three minutes a day will lead to familiarity with the following, and it's quite the list. Clarity of mind, stress relief, sharper thinking, improved concentration, and enhanced creativity. I like the sales pitch, Richard. Is it true? Yeah, I think it is. I, You know, the key, the, obviously, this approach in the three-minute thing begins with developing calmness because the key element in any analysis of experience is initially to become less reactive. Most of us suffer from unconscious reactivity. That's to say things appear to us at our sense gates in one of the five senses or our minds, and we react to them unconsciously without even knowing why. And the first step is to lower that reactive threshold. As we gradually learn to become less reactive, so we begin to see things as they are. And as we th see things as they are, through becoming less reactive, we find we become better at concentrating, more clear about what we're doing. We suddenly see creative ways of dealing with problems which otherwise we would have just reacted to unconsciously. And all the other good things it says on the back cover. Really, essentially, it is all down to one thing, which is overcoming reflexive reactivity. And reflexive reactivity is such a common element of experience. But without understanding why it's reflexive and what makes it reactive, we have little chance of controlling it. We can try to control it by, I don't know, walking around with our eyes averted or by trying to control what we say, the political correctness business or whatever. But these are very, very denatured approaches to really a fundamental insight into our psychology, namely why we react to things unconsciously in the first place. And if we understood that, we would cut through all these problems at a stroke. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. I like that use of the, the metaphor of reactivity because I, I agree with you, it's fundamental. And it's, it's often something that's not quite articulated in an accessible manner uh, by quite a few Buddhists because it, it gets recouched within yeah, the, the concept or the framework of, of uh, fundamental ignorance, but uh, good. There also seems to be implicit then, well, obviously, it's quality over quantity, right? That seems to be implicit in what you're saying. You're, you're suggesting that three minutes of quality presence is good enough to bring about some transformation, and we don't need, as you were saying before, to sit for a couple of hours uh, doing Vispassana. Would that be right? Yeah, I would, that would be fair. I, you know, my, my view is if you do three minutes a day, like every day, that's more valuable than doing one hour where you sleep 57 minutes. <laughs> yeah, and okay. honestly, that is the problem. And many, many monks have said this, that a lot of the emphasis on long sitting encourages people literally to drift off into what's, what the Tibetans call neutrality, which is this sort of blankness where nothing's happening. Now, of course, that can be relaxing because the body is at least relaxing. But in terms of generating insight, it's a very little limited value. Whereas you can generate sharp insight in a very short period. And of course, if you can develop a practice like that, you can access it anytime. So it's not to say you should only practice three minutes a day. But if you do practice three minutes a day and you do so with a clear understanding of what you are doing then that will build up into something you can access anytime. And that, of course, is really valuable because what really matters is not what you do on your meditation cushion, it's what you do when you get off it. And if you have a practice that you can take off your meditation cushion, that is going to be a lot more valuable than a practice that you only do on your meditation cushion. And sadly, so often one meets practitioners who sit on their meditation cushion for hours, but the moment they get off it, they're completely ordinary people. It's as if it doesn't translate. And this, of course, is a failure at a very deep level to understand what we're trying to address, which is our own experience. And our own experience, of course, happens to us 24-7. It doesn't just happen when we're on our meditation cushion. And if we don't have practices that address our actuality, they will never achieve the deep transformation we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Okay, so why this book and not something else? And who is it aimed at? Well, it's aimed at two classes of people, really. Um, the first class are meditators who've tried it, done it for a bit, 
and have either got stale or have given up altogether. And it's saying, hey, you can revision this in a different way and make it work. And I've had a lot of very positive feedback from long-term practitioners in that regard. And the second audience is people who've read about meditation, thought it might be a good thing, but have never thought they could do it because they it appears to require really big dedication, lots of time and lots of changes in their life, which they don't want to make. And that much larger audience is also an audience that have had a lot of success with it, namely just ordinary people who've heard about meditation but thought, well, it's not for me because it's too complicated. And my view is that meditation really is a skill, a life skill, that should be taught alongside reading and writing. I mean, if they taught reading, writing and meditation in primary school, we'd have a much happier world. Um, because in many ways, meditation is a very simple life skill. It's just the ability to engage with experience as experience before looking at the contents of experience in terms of gain, loss, success, failure, and all the rest of it. Just look at experience as experience. And it's just never addressed. And so most contemporarily educated people have no knowledge of their own experience. They simply never, ever engage with it. And so to me, simply giving simple techniques, just really short techniques to engage with experience directly is of extraordinary value. And so my very, I very much hope that people will just try it because it's only three minutes a day after all. It's not like it takes a lot of time. And the, the undertaking I've given in this book is that every technical word is explained. There are no technical words which are not embedded in everyday language. That's a really, really important criticism, I think, of the way that meditation tr traditions are often presented. Because they come from Pali or Sanskrit or Tibetan, people use these complicated foreign terms without fully explaining them. And that to me is very, very problematic because it means people land up dancing on words. They land up having the words, but not the experience to which those words apply. So to me, what I've tried to do is when I've used technical terms, use them in the context of them being fully explained. And there are only about 10, I think, in this book, but they are all key technical terms which need to be embedded in experience. And then the other thing is to give short practices where experience is clearly explained. So we know what we're trying to do and then do it for three minutes. And that's it. And I think with those two features, you can make real progress in developing a meditation practice in a very short time. Okay, you heard it, folks. There it is. Um, one thing I would add to that, which is uh, an agreement, is this idea that the onus is on us to, to make sense of what the, the actual steps of a practice are, right? Interpreting it into common parlance is essential, I think, also not just for for avoiding confusion, but because it also is an activity of intelligent engagement with the tradition, with the practice itself. So it's not just sort of taken on faith, so to speak, right? But you're actually trying to unpack it and make sense of it as you explore it uh, through, well, to go back to your word, your own experience, yeah? Well, exactly. And indeed, when you read, supposing, say, for example, there's a book called Deity Mantra and Visualization, I think, which is extracts from Jimmy Linkpa talking about visualization within tantric practice, you see this deeply practical sense with which these authors write. For example, he says there, you should meditate, you should try and generate the image of a deity looking at a visualization. It would be good if you could go around the back. And indeed, with virtual reality, we can now create 3D images. They, you know, the, the authors that wrote these traditional texts were deeply practical people. They were always trying to give people practical advice and to embed what they were saying within practical advice. It's just because they wrote in foreign languages, often the way they come over to us as contemporary people is as kind of theoretical. And I think that's unfortunate. I feel that you know, the path of meditation, indeed, the whole path of Buddha practice is deeply practical. It's not mystical at all. It's practical. 
And it, all the techniques are designed to cause results. And once one engages with the practice in that way, practically, not theoretically, it really changes its nature. And one suddenly realizes that this is a technology. It's just as much a technology as our Western technology is a technology. It's just a technology of experience. And hence, it has a great value as we move forward into modernity. Because having a technology of experience to go along our increasingly developed external technology is a chance that we will recover wisdom and not simply use things for wrong ends, which unfortunately has been such a feature of the Western and contemporary use of technology. Yeah, again, there's a lot in there, but I want to uh, leave a bit of time to talk about one other work of yours, uh, which dates back to 2021. It's a commentary series of two books, and it's called Searcher Reaches Land's Limits, a commentary on Revelations of Mind, which is the book, the updated, let's say, version of Time, Space and Knowledge we were discussing. Now, look, um, many of the listeners to this podcast are long-term practitioners too. Uh, many of them are academics, and they might be interested in this work. In the description, uh, it states that it engages the reader in an open, non-dogmatic inquiry that has practical, philosophical, scientific, and meditative dimensions, touches on current Western understandings of the science of perception, psychology, as well as Buddhist thought to inspire the reader to engage in their own journey of uh, self-exploration. Now, it's a big book. There's a lot in there. But perhaps you can just give us a bit of a, an overview and let us know how it does that, how specifically it engages the reader in that open, non-dogmatic way. Yeah, sure. So this is a book that is a commentary. It's, a, it's what I call a reading commentary on Revelations of Mind. So the, te the Revelations of Mind book was actually written by Tartan Rimshen, published in 2012. And that Revelation of Mind is quite a big book. It's about 400 pages. And in fact, the this Search Reaches Land's Limits, volumes one and two, are contain every single paragraph of Revelations of Mind. But each paragraph is then commented on because some of the writing in Revelations of Mind is little gnomic and it, it may take a bit of expansion to really make sense of it. So what are we talking about here? Well, first of all, let's talk about the title. Searcher Reaches Land's Limits is actually card 14 of the tarot, Temperance. And the idea is that the searcher who's looking for spiritual truth reach, reaches the limits of the known, but realizes that his destination is still ahead of him. He's reached the end of the land. Now, the land to which this is referring is the land of analytical and cognitive analysis. That's to say there's always a gulf between logical analysis and the final destination that we are seeking. Now, this is a very deep teaching, and it's in the Western esoteric tradition as well as in the Asian traditions. This idea that our ultimate destination is somehow beyond logic. It's somehow embedded in some greater experience, which is not illogical. You could say it's Alogical. It doesn't require logic. So you come to a point where you reach land's limits. What do you do when you reach land's limits? Well, the metaphor is there's a cliff and you jump. Now, you only fall an inch when you jump, but you need to jump into the unknown and be willing to jump into the unknown. That's the metaphor. That's why the book's called Search for Reaches Land's Limits. Now, what is this about? Well, if you look at Revelations of Mind, Revelations of Mind's in two halves. And the first half talks about cognition as it would be described by psychologists or by cognitive um, neurologists, namely as a system that reacts to sense inputs based upon pre-existing categories. We... we we label our experiences, we interpret our experiences, we make sense of our experiences by referring those experiences back to what we remember of prior examples. This is a fundamental element of humanity. You could argue it's the key element of our intelligence. It's what makes homo sapiens 
sapiens, namely that we're able to learn from experience. But of course, that activity is inherently historical. That's to say, you only know what something is because you knew it before. You label it from something you have recovered from your memory. And this process of using memory to interpret what is happening to us in the present means that in a very deep sense, we're going round and round in circles. This is called samsara in Buddhist parlance, that we literally go round and round and round in circles in a process that's called dependent origination in Buddhism, namely that our primordial ignorance of our actuality leads us to label our experience by prior, prior, prior categories, which are themselves based in primordial ignorance of our experience. So we can land up going round and round in circles. And this is a subject of what in Buddhism is called the Abhidharma, namely the analysis of experience in terms of its components. And it is really a deep element of our experience. But embedded, mixed up within that historical narrator, narration is something else, namely our innate intelligence. Now, our innate intelligence is something quite different. That's to say you can have an intuition, you can have an insight, you can see something new, which is not based in labeling, which is not based in memory. It's coming directly if we can't clarify in our own experience the difference between our innate reaction to things and our labeled reaction to things, if we can't separate those two things out, we are always going to be confused. And unfortunately, our learned experience is dominant because it speaks with a louder voice. So although every moment of experience might begin with direct perception, it is rapidly overtaken by learned perception. Sometimes it's said that first impressions never lie. That's to say the first thing you experience is a direct insight, but the next thing you experience is a learned insight. And so we land up all the time with this problem that although we are engaging with things, the engagement that we remember is the learned one, not the direct one. Our memory is always deceiving us. Now, all of these insights are addressed in Revelations of Mind, particularly in the first half of the book. And that leads to a yoga. And the yoga it points to is the yoga of identifying arising experience. If we can identify arising experience and engage there, we can, we can become free of our learned patterning. We can, at a stroke, cut through our reactivity. Of course, such an ability requires the kind of meditation practices that are in three minutes a day, which is, again, one of the reasons why three minutes a day emerge, because it emerged from an, uh, a study of revelations of mind. But the idea that we can cut through reactivity moment to moment to moment, and in so doing, uncover our innate cognitive freedom is essentially the yoga that, that, that is then explored in the second half of Revelations of Mind or the set volume two of Search for Reaches Land's Limits, which is in a way to art articulate a new yoga based upon insights of the non-dual Tibetan traditions, but in modern language. And that is the subject of, of Revelations of Mind and the subject of these two books. Great, good. That's a very clear explanation and uh, appreciate it. Well, Richard, look, we're running out of time. Is there anything uh, you'd like to, to say or end with before we close? My belief, and I, I think I'd be um, in good company here, is that the ultimate intent of the Buddha Dharma is to address cognition. And the ultimate goal is to free our cognition from the past, that our cognition would somehow become trackless, to use the old language, that we would transcend fixed views, that we would find freedom of being moment to moment to moment. And that whole approach doesn't require any of the paraphernalia of traditional Buddhism at all. 
none, and can be expressed entirely within contemporary language. And it is a remarkable feature of the Buddhist teaching that it can be developed and expressed in this manner. It doesn't need reinterpretation. It is all there in the texts. All we need to do is to take those teachings and simply translate them into modern language. There's no need to reinterpret them as if somehow they need improvement. That to me has been a huge discovery to realize that within this ancient tradition that I was so attracted by when I was a teenager, there is this very deep feature. And that has been something that has really inspired me. And when I see what's happening in modernity, particularly the crisis of truth and meaning, which is so pervasive and so corrosive, it is clear to me that that crisis of meaning is arising because people have lost contact with their innate intelligence. And it is a key task of anyone who has engaged with the Dharma to make contact with that innate intelligence and then express it as clearly as they can. Because in so doing, we give great service to modernity. And that's what I'm trying to do in these books. And I feel passionately this is an important thing. I think if, if we don't do this, the future for mankind is dire indeed because we're not mechanical beings. Yes, a large element of our cognition is mechanical. And yes, Google and all the logarithmic devices can mimic that element of our cognition and hence manipulate us in very dangerous ways. But that is not the entirety of our being. There are elements in our being that are not mechanical. And discovering them and developing them is the task of being a human being. And it is the birthright of a human being to discover that. And when they do, they discover autonomy, they discover independence, they discover creativity, they become free. And that is the transcendental message of the Buddha Dharma. That's what the Buddha was trying to teach. He wasn't saying become 10% happier. He wasn't saying moderation in all things. He wasn't teaching stoicism. He was talking about freedom from suffering by becoming whole as a human being. And to me, that is a key, key element that, that, that modernity needs to discover and the Dharma offers. And so that really is what motivates me, what I dedicated the last part of my life to, and what I hope these books begin to express. And if they do, I am really delighted. Okay, folks, so you heard it. We've had Transcendence, Cognition, Experience, and Three Minutes a Day. And you've been listening to Richard Dixie here on the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. We'll catch you next time round for another interview. Bye for now. This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. That's right. It's my podcast, and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, 
as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools. Well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship. And if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com. 